0: Hi and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month we'll take a look at the evolution of novelty in conserved genes, and find out how to predict heterosis from genomic data. I'm Jeff Marsh. Evolution by natural selection works on genetic variation but the nature of the changes which lead to evolutionary novelty is the subject of continuing debate. With some genes having important and sometimes multiple jobs, most changes to their coding sequence are likely to have a negative effect on fitness, and thus would not be favoured by natural selection. On the other hand, it's often these phenotypically important genes which biologists look to when studying species differences. Darren Parker from St Andrews University in Scotland and his team suggests that alternative splicing, where a single gene is manipulated into producing multiple products, might hold the key to this apparent contradiction. Here's Darren.
1: So the kinds of changes that are involved in evolutionary innovation are currently debated So there are two major ideas, the first being that cis regulatory changes might be most responsible for evolutionary innovations. So cis regulatory change is a change that causes a change in gene expression, where the other changes are more classical sort of ideas of changes in the coding sequence of the gene, which cause changes to the actual protein sequence. These changes are often thought to be more dramatic than that of a change in regulation. So the debate has focused on whether or not protein coding changes or regulatory changes are more likely to cause differences in adaptive evolution.
0: Right, and we don't know at this point which one of those is more prevalent. I read in your paper that there are examples of of both in in the same species group.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's not clear to us which one of these is having a larger effect on evolutionary innovations generally. And as you point out, we often find that even within the same species group, that different traits have different modes of evolutionary innovation.
0: But broadly speaking, what are the theoretical arguments for evolutionary innovation coming about from non-coding changes? Okay,
1: so it's thought that changes to cis-regulated regions are likely to incur less pleiotropy, negative pleiotropy that is, pleiotropy being effects on other traits, not the focal trait that we're interested in. Generally speaking, changes that occur often have knock-on negative effects on other traits, which means that they won't be favoured by selection. It's thought that because of the modular nature of cis-regulatory changes, it's less likely to produce these negative pleiotropic effects than changes at a protein level. And thus we may expect changes at cis-regulatory regions to actually produce more evolutionary innovation.
0: OK, and the gene you were looking at was called fruitless. What, what do we know about fruitless?
1: OK, so fruitless is one of the classic behavioural genetic genes, It's involved in the sex determination pathway of pretty much all insects that we've looked in. It's involved particularly in male sexual behavior. It seems to have been conserved in this role from at least cockroaches to flies, which is quite a lot of insect evolution. Fruitless is also a transcription factor. So what it does is it actually regulates a whole range of downstream genes. It's sex specifically spliced So it has male-specific isoforms and female-specific isoforms, and those are used to sexualise the nervous system of the fly.
0: Okay, so there's loads of evidence to suggest that fruitless should be, and indeed is, highly conserved. So presumably there should be no species-specific differences.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So one of the reasons we took on this study was because we know from Drosophila studies that fruitless is a major transcription factor, one that you don't generally want to mess with. However, we find in our own lab that often this gene is implicated for song differences in flies between populations and also between species. And we're wondering how we would marry those two concepts and how it could possibly be the case. So this actually gets closer to a further conundrum in evolutionary biology, which is the widespread use of candidate genes. Candidate genes are often picked because they're the genes that have a large effect on our phenotype of interest. But precisely because they have a large effect, if you change it, you're likely to have deleterious consequences. So, how can we think of these genes as being responsible for functional innovation and also conservation? In our study, we suggest one way that this might be possible via alternative splicing, which allows multiple gene products produced from the same gene, which allows some isoforms to maintain the sort of ancestral essential functions of the gene and allows other isoforms to diverge away and take on new functions and new roles.
0: Okay so you looked at the structure of this gene in loads of different species of Drosophila trying to work out which parts of those genes were being selected across the coding regions.
1: That's correct yeah so we took 18 species of Drosophila, which have been sequenced. and We annotated the fruitless gene within these things. We then looked, using statistical models, to determine where in fruitless there might be signatures of selection. And we found that there were very highly conserved regions of fruitless. And there were also regions that showed divergence between species. So the really conserved regions were the common coding regions of fruitless, and also two of the alternative splice exons we also found that the regions that showed divergence were restricted to the alternative splice regions.
0: Okay, so there were regions that remained conserved. Did you find that a surprise? Uh, no, we didn't. We expected
1: to find that there would be whole transcripts that would be evolutionary conserved because we can move parts of fruitless from the mosquito into a fruit fly and we can reconstruct the muscle of Lawrence, which is a muscle and a that's specified by fruitless. So we knew it had some conserved information for this to be possible. But the interesting part is that fruitless can also contain species-specific divergence within the same gene.
0: Okay, so you found some areas that are under selection, some areas that remain conserved. Does this offer the solution then to how novelty evolves in otherwise conserved genes?
1: Yes, we, we believe that alternative slicing is overlooked mechanism for ways that conserved genes could actually generate alternative isoforms that could be under selection, uh, freeing them from the pleiotropy that the gene usually experiences. This sort of phenomenon has been studied much more in gene duplication, which is the duplication of a whole gene rather than a single exon, which is what alternative splicing provides. But we think that if we were to look at alternative splicing more, we also find that isoforms of other genes also show this sort of pattern.
0: And lastly then, how much of a role would you expect this alternative splicing to be playing in speciation?
1: It's likely that alternative splicing offers a route for functional gene diversification and from this possibly a role in speciation. However, it is not currently known what kind of an impact this would have but with further studies we could perhaps answer that.
0: Now you might think that commercial breeders would choose their best set of pigs, chickens or wheat, etc. to breed the next set of offspring. In actual fact, breeders have known for more than 100 years that by crossing different but carefully selected lines, they can give rise to offspring that are superior to their parents in certain phenotypes like growth and fertility, for example. This is due to a phenomenon known as heterosis or hybrid rigor. But as I'm sure you can imagine, working out which of the numerous pure-line combinations will give rise to the highest levels of heterosis can be an exhaustive process. Esenam Amuza-Owe from Wageningen University in the Netherlands and her team have found themselves a workaround by actually predicting the success of these crosses using just genomic data. Here's Esenam.
2: Heterosis is when you observe an increase in any biological character. It can be growth, productivity fertility size in a hybrid organism compared to its pure line parents
0: all right and this isn't just a biological curiosity is it it's exploited in commercial breeding schemes
2: yes to a very large extent it is in poultry in lots of plant species in pigs i think is one of the most important aspects actually of their crossbreeding schemes
0: So tell me how it works. You keep pure lines that you then bring together to form these superior offspring.
2: Yes, uh, it's really interesting, actually, because, you know, in animal breeding, we basically select the best parents for the next generation. So in crossbreeding schemes, it's a bit more complicated because you actually make this genetic advancement within your pure lines. And then you cross these pure lines and the actual commercial animals are the crossbreds. So you hope to breed the best pure land animals that will actually produce offspring which have high levels of heterosis. So to fully exploit heterosis, you have to keep the pure lines.
0: Okay, so the tricky bit then is to choose the right parent lines to cross because you can't feasibly test every possibility.
2: That's exactly what we were trying to solve because the most expensive part of the commercial breeding programme is actually testing as many possibilities as you can. Imagine if you have, let's say, even only five pure lines then the possibilities are already something around 20 options of crossbreeds that you can produce. And if you want to test all of these, it takes a lot of time and it's also a lot of money. So we were thinking if it's possible to use genomics to predict the level of heterosis that you expect, and that would really solve a lot of the problems that is faced in commercial crossbreeding.
0: Okay, so it would be really beneficial to be able to predict the outcome of these crosses before you do them. How has this been done up until now?
2: Well, in the past, there have been a few studies where they also use genomic information, but they had a very limited number of markers, so the accuracy was quite low. So, to be honest, I believe most commercial breeding programs have just been field testing. They don't do much of prediction, so they test many possibilities, and then based on what they see in the field, then they're able to pick field trials. That's why I feel the study is really interesting and can be very helpful as well.
0: Okay, and presumably to make these predictions based on genetic markers, it would be easier if we had an understanding of the mechanisms behind heterosis. Do we know how that works?
2: Um, No, we don't. <laughs> and to be honest, I feel there's not one unifying mechanism that we can really point to because there are three most common Theories to explain heterosis. And in our study, we simplified the model and we used the theory that heterosis is mainly due to dominance. But then there are other theories about it being due to epistatic effects. We believe that there are epistatic effects, but then to be able to model something, most of the time you have to simplify it as much as possible.
0: Okay, so now that we have all this genomic data available to us, you decided to use. Specifically, this value of the squared difference of allele frequency. Can you explain why?
2: Um, well, this was based mainly on theory, because if you start from a one locus model, you can actually derive the fact that heterosis is directly proportional to the squared difference in allele frequency. But then that's a fact at a one locus model. And when you increase it to several loci, things can become a bit more complicated. But we're still able to prove that if you believe in a dominance model, then the square difference in a leaf frequency is directly proportional to heterosis, even at multiple loci. And since this concept is sort of new, in addition to the paper, we had a supplementary Excel sheet where people can actually see this for themselves, because this was something which was controversial.
0: So just how big was your experiment? How many samples did you have?
2: Um, At the pure line level, we had 11 pure lines. And for the crossbeards, we had 47 different types of crosses made between these 11 pure lines. And for each of these, the records we had were based on more than 400,000 individuals. So in animal breeding, at least, I know that's one of the biggest data sets that's ever been used to try and predict heterosis. The main result we found is that using the square difference in allele frequency, we can predict heterosis with an accuracy of about 0.5. And I think that's really high for heterosis, actually. And I should stress that this accuracy is actually based on cross-validation. So we didn't just get this accuracy based on our model, but we removed some records of courses that we actually had, and then we tried to predict them and then compared it to what we actually know since we actually had the phenotype.
0: And so what does that number then equate to when we're talking about time and effort saved in field testing as it's normally done?
2: Um, well, with, the, with an accuracy of 0.5, you are able to cut down the number of courses you would have field tested by 50%. So you're actually halving the number of courses you would have tested. But one new thing in, in this work is that in the past, heterosis was always, as I mentioned, the deviation from the pure line means. But in practical situations, you don't have the pure line performance within the same environment that your crossbreds were kept in. So you actually don't have this parental mean. So one new thing that we did here was that we were able to show that even if you don't have the pure line means, if you use a dominance model, you're still able to partition the crossbred phenotype into a pure line mean and heterosis.
0: Does it also feed back into our understanding of the mechanism of heterosis, given that you chose a particular model of dominance for this test?
2: Well, from this study, we could see that dominance doesn't fully explain heterosis. Because if dominance fully explains heterosis, then when we run our cross-validation method, the results shouldn't have fluctuated much. But we did see some fluctuation within our results. But we still get a relatively high accuracy of prediction. There's also been lots of evidence to show that there's epistatic effects also contributing to heterosis.
0: So what's next for you then?
2: Um, Well, for now, in in this first paper, we used an average of the squared difference in allele frequency across the entire genome. And one thing you may be thinking is it's probably not true that all the loci contribute to heterosis equally. So what we want to do next is to see whether we can find specific genomic regions that contribute more to heterosis. And then we'll use only these regions to try and predict heterosis and see whether we get an increase in the accuracy of prediction. And another interesting thing would also be to look not only at the line level, but to look at which specific cirrus perhaps. Like within the line, there are lots of different male animals. So you can pick one male that is better suited to a particular dam line. So I think there are lots of possibilities and opportunities in the study of heterosis.
0: That was Essina away. And that's it for this episode. Join us again next month for a fresh installment of the Heredity podcast.